This is The Guardian. Brought to you by Lexus. Some things do more than their stated functions. Because exceptional things inspire you to do exceptional things. To this select list, we add the all-new Lexus GX. With its exceptional capability, you'll see possibilities you never knew existed, sending you far outside your comfort zone. But as much as the GX challenges you, it also spoils you. Its intuitive technology and luxurious features mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Live up to it. The all-new Lexus GX. Looking for your next great podcast? We live in unprecedented times. To make sense of it, what if you could learn from some of the most influential people on the planet? The podcast Tools and Weapons is hosted by Microsoft's Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. Every week he has a candid conversation with guests, including Prime Ministers and Pulitzer Prize-winning journalists. The latest episode features Bayer CEO Bill Anderson. Though most of us know Bayer for pharmaceuticals, they're also focused on crop science. They're putting digital tools in the hands of farmers to get the most out of every acre. Listen to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts. Zaporizhia nuclear power plant in southeastern Ukraine is Europe's largest nuclear power station and one of the biggest in the world. Russian forces seized the plant back in early March, but in recent weeks the site has been a target for sustained shelling, repeatedly getting disconnected from Ukraine's power grid. Fire damage to overhead power lines caused the remaining two operating reactors at the southern Ukraine plant to shut down. Last week, a team from the International Atomic Energy Agency arrived at the plant and expressed concern over its condition. I will continue to be worried about the plant until we have a situation which is more stable. It is obvious that the physical integrity of the plant has been violated several times. The biggest worry for Zaporizhia, like any nuclear power plant, is dangerous overheating in the reactor cores, which, as the world saw during Chernobyl and Fukushima, can lead to nuclear disasters that have impacts for tens, even hundreds of years. After the explosion in 1986, the Soviets built a primitive tomb to cover the stricken reactor. Engineers say there's still enough radioactive material in there to cause widespread contamination. So what protections are in place to stop a nuclear meltdown from happening? And what are the options now for Zaporizhia? I'm Ian Sample, The Guardian Science Editor, and this is Science Weekly. Claire Corkhill, you're a professor in nuclear material degradation at the University of Sheffield. Can you first just give us the basics on how a nuclear power plant works, how it generates energy that we can use? Inside of the nuclear reactor, right at the centre, is what we call the core. And in there are fuel rods containing 
uranium, usually uranium dioxide. And the uranium is a radioactive isotope, which means it's unstable. It wants to split and become two different atoms. And in doing so, in splitting, it releases a huge amount of energy. And that energy we harness to turn into electricity. And the way that that works is that surrounding the outside of the core is water that's being pumped around that core continually. And the water takes the heat from the splitting of those uranium atoms. It turns it into a steam. The steam then turns a turbine, which generates electricity in a generator and sends electricity and power to people's homes. So when a nuclear power plant is up and running, what are the main things that can go wrong? What are the things that safety officers are sort of concentrating on and looking out for? The number one thing that we're looking for is that cooling water. So the temperature inside of the reactor core, it can be over 1700 degrees, sometimes up to 2000 degrees Celsius. And so if that cooling water isn't continually circulating around the core, then we could get into a situation where that uranium fuel starts to melt and melt down with the other components inside the reactor core. And and that's precisely what has happened in nuclear disasters like um, the one that occurred at Chernobyl and also of Fukushima. So really essential is that that cooling water is continually being pumped around the reactor whilst it's operational. And that's what's known as a meltdown, right? Tell me more about what happens there. What happens is it melts together with um, the cladding. These are are long, thin metal tubes in which the fuel pellets reside. Then that kind of turns into a a bit of a molten lava, if you like. It's it's literally like the stuff coming out of a volcano, except it's very radioactive. And that lava then starts to seep down through the reactor building, taking other bits of the infrastructure with it, like concrete and stainless steel. Now, as that reaction is happening, as well as melting down the internal parts of the reactor, which is completely uncontrollable in that stage. The other thing that's happening is the high temperature reaction of the fuel cladding itself. And this generates hydrogen. And when hydrogen gas comes into contact with oxygen in the air, it's an explosive substance. And what are some of the dangers? First of all, perhaps what tends to be the impact on people in the area or even at the site? A really good example to look at is Chernobyl. So in the aftermath of the incident, there were a lot of people on the site trying to put the the fire in the reactor out. And those firefighters received a dose of radiation that was so high that some of them died. For those people living in the exclusion zone throughout the accident, so the local town wasn't evacuated for a number of days. And what we've seen now is that children who were living in the local area at the time of the accident, they're now developing thyroid cancer. And that's because one of the main isotopes that's released in an accident is iodine-131. And this isotope, it tends to accumulate in thyroid glands, which are much more active in, in younger people than they are in adults. And what about the environmental impacts from leaked radiation? The impacts on the local area and the environment and the wildlife of the nuclear fallout, so that's all of the radioactive substances that are emitted usually as gases and then they they fall onto the surface of soils and trees and, and so on. These are hazardous, so they emit radioactivity at quite a high rate, which is why we have an exclusion zone around the reactors at Fukushima and Chernobyl. But actually in Chernobyl, in the exclusion zone itself, there has been research that's shown that the exclusion zone around Chernobyl has been repopulated by creatures. They've actually benefited from people moving out of the exclusion zone and certain um, types of species are thriving.
We obviously want to make nuclear power plants as safe as possible, whether it's against natural disasters like earthquakes and the subsequent tsunami at Fukushima, or as we've seen in the Ukraine with, you know, potentially being targeted or caught in the crossfire during war. Starting with that first layer, the building, what kinds of protections are in place? We learned from the Chernobyl accident a very important lesson, and that was that the reactor building should be contained with a, a really strong contain, reinforced containment building, which it didn't have at Chernobyl. But now all power stations have this very robust concrete outer shell, which has been designed to prevent an accident, for example, a plane were to fly into the reactor. So those buildings are really extremely robust now. The part that isn't quite so robust is the other associated infrastructure, and that's one of the concerns as Aparigia is that all of the electrical power components um, and, and other parts of the reactor site are not quite so well protected as that reactor building. And that includes the nuclear cooling pools where the waste is initially kept, right? So the fuel, once it comes out of the reactor, once it's finished its useful life, is hot. So that's why it's stored in a big cooling pond. It, it looks like a giant Olympic swimming pool, essentially. It stays there for a couple of years. And then after that, it's it's transferred to dry cask storage, which is big concrete containers where the fuel goes. And both of these are present at the Zaporizhia nuclear power station. Now, these buildings are nowhere near as well protected as the reactor core itself. And if they were to be struck by a shell or other kind of artillery then there is potential, serious potential, for a release of radiation. You also mentioned that the power supply isn't as well protected as the reactor core either, even though, as you've described, it keeps the plant running and, crucially, the reactor's cool. There have been multiple reports that Zaporizhia keeps getting disconnected from the main power supply. Why could being taken offline and potentially using an emergency power supply be a problem? Well, the emergency power supply is, is provided by a diesel generator. And these diesel generators obviously kick in when the electricity supply goes off. And this is what happened at Fukushima in the aftermath of the earthquake. There was no electricity, so the backup generators kicked in. But they were situated at a level that was eight metres above sea level. But the tsunami itself was 15 metres high. So the backup generators were inundated with water and they failed to provide that cooling water around the reactor, which is what led to the meltdown. And at Zaporizhia, the thing that we have to be concerned about with the backup generators is, you know, if there is an artillery strike which hits the electricity supply and the backup generator, then clearly there's room or scope for an accident. If for some reason the reactors do start to overheat, if there's a fire or if some of these systems go down, is there anything else that could stop a, a meltdown occurring or protect people from any resulting radiation? Yes. So if the backup generators kick in, the operators have about a 24-hour window in which to put the reactor into something called a cold shutdown state. Now, of the six reactors at Zaporizhia, actually four of them are already in this state. Only two are operational. Um, and that cold shutdown state, essentially what that does, it takes away most of the heat. It slows down the reaction. So we don't actually need the coolant water to pump around the reactor. The reactor is in what we call a passively safe state. That is always a possibility. And are there measures that can be taken with the sort of surrounding population if it comes to the point where people think some sort of disaster is imminent? 
quite regularly around nuclear power stations, people are issued with iodine tablets. So if there were a release of radioactivity from a nuclear meltdown or a release from the spent fuel that's being stored, they would encourage the local inhabitants to take these iodine tablets, particularly the children. And what that does is that the iodine then is used in the thyroid more than the iodine that's been released from the reactor. That would be the first immediate step to take. The second would be to try and get people as far away from that reactor as possible. So bearing all this in mind, why hasn't the plant just been shut down? I think probably the safest thing to do would be absolutely to shut the plant down right now. But the Zaporizhia nuclear power station, when it's fully operational, all six reactors, they contribute something like 25% of electricity to the Ukraine. So you could understand that perhaps Russia are politically motivated not to allow that electricity to be used by the Ukrainians. And we've heard that they've been trying to switch the energy supply from the Ukrainian grid to the Russian grid. And in terms of international pressure, there is actually a part of the Geneva Convention which states that there should be no military action around any nuclear installations. Unfortunately, the problem is that not all of the um, members who've signed up to the Geneva Convention have ratified that particular part, most notably the United States of America. So it's difficult to see how international pressure can be brought to bear when there's an outstanding article in the Geneva Convention that, that is not being adhered to. What really would you like to see happening next there? Well, I I think importantly, the nuclear reactors should be shut down and there should be an exclusion zone that means that there's absolutely no military action at all around uh, the reactors themselves and, and importantly also where that spent fuel is being stored. Claire Corkill, many thanks for coming on and explaining all this to us. Thank you. Thanks again to Professor Claire Corkill. You can find a link to all our coverage of the Russia-Ukraine war on the podcast webpage at theguardian.com. That's it for today. The producers were Madeleine Finlay and Rachel Porter. The sound design was by Tony Onochuku. And the executive producer was Max Sanderson. We'll be back on Thursday. See you then. This is The Guardian. Looking for your next great podcast? We live in unprecedented times. To make sense of it, what if you could learn from some of the most influential people on the planet? The podcast Tools and Weapons is hosted by Microsoft's Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. Every week, he has a candid conversation with guests, including prime ministers and Pulitzer Prize-winning journalists. The latest episode features Bayer CEO Bill Anderson. Though most of us know Bayer for pharmaceuticals, they're also focused on crop science. They're putting digital tools in the hands of farmers to get the most out of every acre. Listen to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts. 
Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com.